0: Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If I were to ask you, what is the greatest miracle Jesus has ever done? How would you answer? If you were to look at the full body of his work in the New Testament, what's the greatest miracle Jesus has ever done? There's so many to choose from. Uh, From all the healings, uh, you might say, well, he he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty incredible miracle. Uh, He fed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. That's incredible. He walked on water. He calmed a storm just with his words. It'd be hard to pick a bad miracle and say, this is the one that I I think is the greatest. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at what I consider to be the greatest miracle Jesus has ever done. It's a miracle that affected everyone who witnessed it. There was no one Who was indifferent or ambivalent After witnessing this miracle The majority of the people who saw the miracle Were amazed But there were some who witnessed the miracle Who were angry Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing a miracle And being angry about it? You might be more familiar with that feeling Than you realize If you're a New England Patriots fan You might say (laughs) The Eagles were given a miracle And I am angry about it so some people were amazed, some people were angry. I'm curious as to what your reaction will be like this morning. Now this passage we're going to study, it ought to evoke a response from us because it, it forces us to answer some questions, questions about ourselves and questions about Jesus. You see, the goal of this story is not just to impart information, but to call us to faith, to Call us to respond. This story has a very specific agenda. And that agenda is for you and I to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And so that shapes my goal this morning with this passage. My goal is to point us towards faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, by highlighting His power and His love for you. The tools we're going to use to get to that goal are questions, questions. That's the weird thing about this passage. It, it tells us things about Jesus and some other people, but it forces us to answer questions about ourselves. In fact, it raises three very important questions. Uh, so in Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus still in the early days of his ministry. We've been going Sunday by Sunday through the Gospel of Mark. We just started a few weeks ago. And, um, and Jesus so far, everywhere he goes, he produces a reaction His miracles are amazing, and his reputation has begun to spread around the region of the world where he is traveling and ministering and teaching. His miracles create a reputation. People are amazed by him. Everywhere he goes, people have questions and awe about the things he is doing, and we see that again in Mark chapter 2. Would you follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1? A few days later... When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, And walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This story confronts us with three different questions about ourselves. That's about Jesus, it's about a healing, but it forces us to look in a mirror. So if you're taking notes, the first question we've got to ask ourselves this morning is this What's wrong with me? Now, not what's wrong with Cody. I've got things wrong with me, but you're writing down what's wrong with me, verses 1 through 5. Mark gives us such great details. He's such a vivid storyteller. He tells us Jesus is back in the town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a seaside fishing village. It's right on the Sea of Galilee, just a small little community, and it becomes Jesus' home base. So when Mark tells us Jesus has gone home, we're not so sure that Jesus actually had a, his own place in Capernaum. We think maybe Jesus sets up his, his, his home base in the home of Simon and Andrew and their mother. So this is a place Jesus comes back in order to rest and, and recharge. And Jesus, as I've already said, his reputation has spread far and wide in that region of the world. Uh, these miracles don't go by quietly. Quietly. And so when Jesus comes back to Capernaum, news spreads fast, and people flock to the house where he's located. And What is Jesus doing in this house? Mark tells us Jesus is teaching. He's not doing miracles at this moment. He's teaching. And this is Jesus' primary mission. His number one task is to proclaim the kingdom of God. The miracles are secondary to that. He's not just some traveling miracle worker. He uses the miracles to to add validity to his message, to point people. They're a sign to a greater truth than just the miracle themselves. And so here's Jesus teaching in this house. It's packed. People are pouring out the front door. And then here come four guys carrying their paralyzed friend on a mat. And they see there's no way to get into the house to Jesus And so they improvise. Now, homes in first century Palestine, of course, are built very different than our homes are today. It was common that your roof was used for multiple purposes. And it wasn't uncommon that you would have a small set of stairs that went up the outside of your house so you could get access to your roof. And so these four guys, they somehow, they shimmy up onto the roof, And what we read said they they began to dig through the roof. Now, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And and I love the literal translation of the Greek at this point. It doesn't say they dug through the roof. It says they unroofed the roof. Can you imagine being inside the house that day? And all of a sudden above Jesus, dirt starts to fall And then little beams of sunlight start coming through. How would you respond to that? How do you think Jesus responded to that? How do you think Simon and Andrew (laughs) responded to that? I didn't order a sunlight. What is this? But they unroof the roof, and then they lower their friend down, and there he is in front of Jesus. And in my imagination, in the silence of this moment, Jesus speaks and says these words. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Are those the words the paralyzed man wanted to hear? Or that his friends expected to hear? I don't think so. I think what they wanted to hear Jesus say was, Son, get up, take your mat, go home. If you were to take a poll of the paralyzed man and his friends and all the people in attendance on that day, and you were to ask them, what is this man's problem? What's wrong with him? The unanimous answer would be, he can't walk. So when Jesus sees a man who can't walk and talks about forgiveness of sins, it seems that Jesus is out of touch. There's a disconnect there of some sort. But if we were to then ask Jesus, Jesus, what's wrong with this man? Jesus' answer would be, sin, We all came in here today with our own problems, our own needs. If you had this one-on-one audience with Jesus and you got to articulate your biggest problem, your greatest concern, there's any number of things you might say. Very real, valid problems, life-altering problems. But I think if it were any one of us lowered through the roof that day, lying before Jesus... His words to us would be the same as they were to that paralytic. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows our great problem. We have a very serious sin problem. The issue, though, is you and I, we often diagnose it incorrectly. We might think we have problems, but we don't know the exact problem. And when we don't know the exact problem, then we don't know the right... uh, correction either we diagnose wrong we prescribe wrong it's like going to your auto mechanic and describing what's wrong with your car by making the noise your car is making and then telling your mechanic what he ought to do to fix that noise yeah every time i push on the brakes it sounds like i'm drowning a thousand cats so if you would just make my radio louder i think everything would be better that logic doesn't make any sense at all If I can't diagnose correctly, then I can't prescribe the right solution either. What Jesus helps us see in this story is that like the paralytic, every single one of us has a problem with sin. It is the great enemy of mankind. And sin is our problem in two ways. It's a problem first in a universal sense. Meaning that sin mars God's perfect creation. Our sin has wrecked what God made. God's perfect creation did not include paralysis or leprosy or cancer or funerals or divorce. So, when Jesus forgives this man's sin before healing his paralysis, he's dealing with the great enemy of mankind. So, sin is a problem in this grand universal sense. We live in a sin scarred world. But sin's also a problem in a specific sense, meaning that we are all individually sinful people. See, Jesus knows the depths of the man on the mat. He knows this man's heart, and he knows that he's a sinner. He knows our hearts as well. You and I are guilty of sin. The Bible says our sin is a very serious matter. But we're not inclined to take it so serious. What we'll often do with our sin thoughts on our own sin, is we will try to minimize our sin by highlighting the good things we've done or the good intentions we've had, and also by comparing ourselves to someone who is obviously far worse than us. So it's like the man who refuses to go on a much-needed diet by saying, look, I know I'm not a fitness guru, but it's not like I've been forklifted out of the side of my house yet either. Do you know anyone like that who wears a bow tie? I didn't think you did, and I don't either. That logic just does not make sense. It escapes the reality of the situation. The reality is this, every single one of us has sinned. The Bible says this, our sin separates us from God. The Bible says we are dead in our sin. We're not dying, we are dead in it. The Bible says that because of our sin, we are by nature deserving objects of wrath, of punishment for our sin against God. The right comparison of my sin is not me to anyone else. It's me to a God who is holy, holy, holy. How do you measure up in that comparison? Every single one of us falls infinitely short in that comparison. What is my problem? This story makes it abundantly clear. Every single one of us has a problem with sin. Well, that evokes another question then. If we know what the problem is, the second question we might ask is, who can fix me? Verses 6 through 10, who can fix me? Well, when Jesus tells the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven, there's an immediate reaction from some religious professionals that are present in the house that day. They react with anger. With indignation. Look at verse 6. Mark says, Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, who are these teachers of the law in verse 6? Your Bible might use the word scribes instead. I'm going to use that word just for the sake of fewer syllables. Who are the scribes that Mark talks about here? Well, these are men who are schooled in the written scriptures, the the Hebrew scriptures. They have studied them backwards and forward, and they are experts on what the Bible says and on how it ought to be interpreted. They're protectors of Jewish tradition and Jewish theology. And throughout the Gospels, the scribes show up time and time again as opponents of Jesus. Now, what's their problem with Jesus here? Their problem is not that Jesus has said the paralyzed man is a sinner. They would agree with Jesus that all people are sinners. Their problem is that Jesus has taken it on himself to forgive the man's sin. Look again at verse 7, at what they say, or what they think, rather, about Jesus. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They don't know who Jesus is. Really, they don't know. Now, you might say, well, if Jesus just told them, hey, I'm the Messiah, then they would back off and they'd be on board. But look, in ancient Judaism, the Messiah was not a divine human figure. He was only human. He was a religious, military, uh, political leader. His job was not to forgive sins, but to set God's people free and lead them back to the Lord. So they had this wrong interpretation, this wrong understanding of the Messiah to begin with. They would never assume that the Messiah, that Jesus, if he identified as a Messiah, that he had the right or the authority to forgive sin. So they think Jesus has made a huge mistake, really a mistake that could lead to his death. Blasphemy is a serious charge. And that is the charge that eventually takes Jesus to the cross. But Mark doesn't stop the story there, of course. I love the details he gives us in the scene. The scribes, they react internally. Jesus responds verbally. Look at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? So Jesus sets up a test. The test is this. If this man gets up and walks, then I've proven my authority and my power to forgive sins. But if he doesn't, then I'm a fraud. Now, which is easier? Is it easier for you to tell someone their sins are forgiven or to tell someone who's paralyzed to get up and walk? It's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no objective proof as to whether or not it's worked. You just say the words and then maybe there's this internal change or something. The harder thing to say is rise and walk because there's gonna be immediate evidence that either Jesus speaks the truth or Jesus speaks lies. So Jesus sets the stage this way to say, here and now you can know that I have the authority to forgive sins because I'm about to tell this guy to get up and walk. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus elevates the situation even higher. Look at what he says of himself in verse 10. He uses a special title or a name. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. What does that mean? It's not a title that that we use a lot even in the church or in our worship. Uh, It's a title that comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, here's the scene. God's people are being terrorized by a series of four beastly rulers. These guys are nasty. They are ripping God's people apart and then God comes on the scene and with ease, he puts down these beastly rulers and he puts his people at rest. And then we're told the Son of Man comes on the scene. We're told this about the Son of Man. He comes from another place, another world, if you will, that speaks to his divinity. But he has an appearance like a man that speaks to his humanity. So the Son of Man is one who is divine and human. And then Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 tells us that all people and all nations serve him, and that his kingdom and dominion will never pass away. So hang with me here. The Son of Man, a human divine figure, the object of worship of all people for all time in his eternal kingdom, how does the Son of Man set his people free from their beastly tormentors? How does he set us free from the hellish reign of sin and suffering? In Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus says this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So Jesus, in this one moment, tells his naysayers and the looky-loos in the crowd, he says, I'm going to show you that I have this authority today in an immediate sense, and then you're going to see the Son of Man one day die and rise again and that validates my authority for all times for all people so we have a problem our problem is sin who can fix the problem you ask the scribes and they would say yes you have a problem no jesus can't fix it you ask our world and our world would say no, you don't have a problem just be kind live your truth everything is going to be okay if you ask Cody, I'd say, yeah, I'm a little messed up, but I'm a grown man. I think I can fix this on my own. But the Bible says this that Jesus is the Son of Man. He is God who took on flesh, and He sets us free from the terror of sin by giving His life as the payment that sets us free. While the paralyzed man walking out of the house that day is impressive, the true validation, the ultimate validation of Jesus' authority and right to forgive is that he walked out of the tomb. It's only in light of the resurrection that the church historical and the church modern has understood the full extent of Jesus' authority and power to forgive sins, to rescue people from hell, to save us for glory for all eternity. To claim the authority to forgive sins is no light matter. To actually forgive them is no cheap matter. And the risen Christ still today exercises the forgiveness of sins on earth. What's wrong with me? Sin. Who can fix me? There is one, and he is Jesus who has come to us. That's our problem That's the fix. One last question for us to wrestle with in this passage. The question is this, what will I do? Verses 10 through 12. What will I do? Jesus has set the stage. The test has been revealed. Then he turns to the paralytic and tells him, rise and walk. I imagine the scene this way. I, I'm watching from the back of the crowd in the house. So I got a crane around necks, around heads to, to see Jesus. And in this moment, everything's quiet. Just Cody's imagination. Everything's quiet. I see four heads silhouetted in the new skylight by the sunlight outside. And Jesus is looking down in front of him and he says, Rise take your mat and go home and then Jesus eyes begin to track upward and just right as they get to my level there's a new head in view totally silent just hear scuffling as this guy picks up his mat and then the crowd that was so impenetrable before suddenly parts like the Red Sea and this dude walks out total silence Next thing I hear, the scurrying of four sets of feet on the roof above. And then, pandemonium. (laughs) The place breaks open. There's some sad fisherman down at the seashore about to launch his boat, and he hears a roar up over the hill coming from this house. It is insanity. Look at how Mark describes it in verse 10. He says, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I mean, can you imagine what it was like in that moment? And here's the most amazing thing. The people who witnessed this miracle are working with limited knowledge. You know more about Jesus than the people who witnessed that miracle in Mark chapter 2. Can you imagine how they would respond if they knew what you know? What if they had seen Jesus arrested and beaten by Jewish authorities? What if they had witnessed the sham trials by Jewish authorities and then Roman authorities? What if they saw him beaten beyond recognition by Roman soldiers? What if they saw him condemned to die while a known criminal was set free? What if they saw him nailed to beams of wood and hoisted in the air? What if they saw the crowds mock him and spit on him and insult him? What if they saw him die, wrapped in fabric, laid in a tomb, and what if three days later they saw the stone over that tomb rolled away and the tomb empty? What if they saw the risen Christ? You know so much more than the crowd that of Mark chapter 2. You've seen the paralyzed man healed, and you've seen Jesus crucified, buried, and risen again. So if sin is my problem, and Jesus is the one who fixed it, what should I do? How should I respond Sister, brother, you should turn your whole life to Jesus Christ. Here's a simple way to think about trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Think about it in terms of head, heart, and hands. With our head, we believe certain things about Jesus. He is the Son of Man, right? He, he is God in the flesh. Eternally preexistent, eternally existent forever. He is God in the flesh And he really lived and he really died and he really rose again. We believe some basic non-negotiables about Jesus with our head. With our heart, we trust what we know. Demons believe in Jesus. We see that in Mark chapter 1. No demon is an atheist. They believe in Jesus. But there's a difference between this head knowledge and this heart trust. I trust that what Jesus says about salvation is true. I don't have to clean myself up and come in order to be saved, I come in all of my mess, all of my brokenness, and I trust in the one who died and rose again to save me. And then with my hands, I turn my life to follow him, to live the way he's taught me to live, to glorify his name in my marriage, in my parenting, in my retirement, in my finances, in my work, in my neighborhood, I live for the glory of Jesus Christ. The crowd on this day responded in awe and praise. The scribes on this day, well, we're not told explicitly how they responded. But we know that from here moving forward, they ratchet up their opposition against Jesus. Can you imagine seeing that miracle and being angry about it, remaining unbelieving? But people every day see the undeniable evidence of the love and power of God and still choose to live in unbelief. I don't know about you. I don't want to be that kind of person who denies the blatantly obvious, the undeniable that there is a God. Jesus is his son. He knows you by name and he loves you so much that he laid down his life and rose again. What an incredible truth. The evidence is undeniable. Jesus loves you and he laid down his life for you. So let's recap real quick. What's wrong with me? Sin. Who can fix that? Jesus. Now, what will I do? Maybe the paralyzed man can teach us one more lesson. You see, he's brought before Jesus in all of his weakness, all of his inability, all of his poverty, all of his sin. And when he's before Jesus, he doesn't begin to list his accomplishments, nor does he list the good things he would have done if he had had two working legs. He just lays there physically and spiritually broken. And that's how you and I should come to Jesus today. If you do not lay hold of your nothingness before God, you'll never enter into a relationship with him. But when we own our powerlessness, our sinfulness, our helplessness, when we acknowledge that we are beggars at the door of God's grace, well, then God can begin to make something beautiful out of us. There's an urgency to this moment. The men who carried their friend into this house that day, they had a sense of urgency. They didn't see the crowd and say, well, we'll come back tomorrow and try again another day. They unroofed the roof in their desperation to get their friend before Jesus. Well, your salvation moment is now. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ, and this is the hour of salvation. The urgency of the moment demands decision. It's as if a tornado is coming down your street towards your house. You cannot delay. You have to move now. Drop Everything and run to Jesus Christ. The greatest moment in history has come and it is rushing towards its final conclusion, and the Son of God is inviting you into everlasting life. Now, I asked you at the beginning of this sermon, What is Jesus' greatest miracle? And now I'll tell you. The greatest miracle Jesus has ever performed is the forgiveness of sinners. And if you will come to Jesus today, that miracle will happen yet again and you will hear him say, my daughter, my son, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for this story that acts like a mirror on our hearts and our lives. Thank you for the miracle we've seen, a man forgiven And then a sign that validates that miracle, a man healed. Lord, help us to identify with that man in all of his sin and all of his brokenness and in his desperation to get before Jesus. Holy Spirit, awaken faith in us now. Bring us to this salvation moment that we would trust in the one who laid down his life and rose again for our salvation. We praise you. You are the good God and this is a great salvation and we are glad to be your people. Bring us to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.